From the garden level of Harvard Medical School's historic Vanderbilt Hall in Boston, this is Think Research, a podcast that discusses the stories behind medical research. I'm Abby, your host. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. According to the World Health Organization, there are around 3 billion people in the world who burn solid fuels like wood and charcoal for cooking, heating, and lighting. Burning these fuels produces a range of health-damaging pollutants like fine particles and black carbon. In poorly ventilated dwellings, the level of fine particles can exceed acceptable levels by more than a hundredfold. The World Health Organization estimates that 4.3 million people a year die from exposure to household air pollution. Dr. Peggy Lai is a pulmonary physician whose research focuses on indoor air pollution and lung health. On today's episode, Dr. Lai talks about her experience providing clinical care in resource-limited settings, including Liberia, Guatemala, and Uganda. She also explains how by listening to concerns of local doctors in Uganda, her group identified a primary determinant of indoor air quality and a solution that she believes will improve the health of some of the world's most vulnerable populations. Dr. Peggy Lai is an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and a physician in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital. Hello, Dr. Lai. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me today. Could you tell us a little about your career background and training? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm trained as a pulmonary physician um, and also as an ICU physician. But in the past six years or so, I've been doing a lot of research in environmental health, um, mostly in epidemiology and genetics. Um, In the past few years, I've started to uh, look more closely at indoor air pollution. So you mentioned you look at indoor air pollution. Um, Is there anywhere in particular that you look at indoor air pollution, and what is indoor air pollution? Uh, That's a great question. So um, it's really just about air quality, and so we like to think about breathing clean air, so air that is free of things that make us sick. Um, And so, you know, indoor air pollution is a mixture of a lot of different things, and so it's quite complex. But one thing that people do focus on is something called... um, PM 2.5. It stands for particulate matter at 2.5 microns or smaller in size. Um, and so it's usually generated by burning things. Um, and uh, the size of the particles really matter because the smaller the particles, the easier it is to evade your natural defenses like, you know, the filters through your nose um, and penetrate deep into your lungs. And in fact, some of the really, really small particles can even go through your lungs into your bloodstream and cause a lot of health problems. Um, and so that's the component of indoor air pollution that people tend to worry the most about. What are some of the causes of air pollution? Let's just take the U.S. because the causes of indoor air pollution in the U.S. versus in a place like rural Uganda is actually very different. Um, and the differences are, number one, just the wealth of the countries. Um, and so, for example, uh, one huge source of indoor air pollution um, is combustion. Um, so whenever you burn anything, you release things like PM2.5 or black carbon or things like that. Um, but in the U.S., we know we all have access to f- clean fuels. And by that, I mean electricity um, or uh, liquid petroleum gas or propane, butane, whatever, a gas stove. Um, but that really is out of reach for most of the world. Um, and so uh, in Uganda, for example, they c- cook with a lot of uh, 
uh, charcoal um, or wood, and that releases a lot more um, of this PM2.5 than if you cook for the cleaner fuel. So that's one major source. Um, other sources are lighting. And so again, in the U.S., for example, we all use electricity for lighting, but in these low-minimum countries, you know, they burn things for lighting. Um, so whether it's kerosene, you know, or candles or other things like that. Um, other sources that we tend to get sort of more uh, worried about in the U.S. Um, are things like allergens, for example. Like, you know, there's a huge move, for example, to move peanut allergens out of schools. You know, or allergens from, you know, cats or dogs or things like that. And that really hasn't been studied um, in low-minimum countries because it just seems to be lower on the hierarchy mm -hmm. yeah, <laughs> of, totally. of what's killing people. Mm -hmm. um, I will say another major difference is that um, buildings um, in places like the U.S. are very different because, number one, they have these HVAC systems, um, which provide ventilation, filtering the air and climate control. Um, whereas in places like Uganda, even the capital, Kampala, um, even fancy hotels don't have these HVAC systems. Um, and so these HVAC systems are designed to clean the air and keep it clean. Can we step back a second? So as far mm -hmm. as your background and training, mm -hmm. is there anything in particular in your background that led you to do the work that you're doing now? What's kind of the, the lead up to what you do now? Yeah, no, um, there is actually. So uh, between, um, well, it's actually, it started in medical school. Um, and so I've actually spent a lot of time doing clinical work in low and middle income countries. And so when I was in medical school, I actually took a year off and <laughs> went to live in the jungles of Guatemala for a year where there was like no running water, no electricity. Um, and so I ran a clinic there, like delivering babies and dealing with machete wounds and malaria and things like that. Um, so that really formed in me this deep desire um, to help people in other countries. And then between my residency training in internal medicine and my uh, fellowship in pulmonary critical care, I actually took a year off. Um, and I lived in Liberia, so in West Africa. Um, and there um, I was working with a non-governmental organization, again, providing clinical care to really the poorest of the poor. I mean, these people, you know, really have nothing. They, you know, they earn less than a dollar a day. And for them, it's, you know, trying to make it to the next day, you know, without dying, basically. And so it really just left a deep impression in me. And so during my fellowship, you know, I wasn't really sure how to meld sort of my desire to do pulmonary and critical care with, you know, this desire to help people in low income countries. And then um, after I finished my fellowships, about two years uh, after I came on faculty, um, uh, I heard about this project um, going on in Uganda, looking at sort of uh, doing community-based research in rural Uganda, and that really fired me up. And so I got in contact um, with the PI of that study, and then I started an indoor air pollution component. So that's kind of how it all came together. Um, and I just couldn't be more grateful that I have the opportunity to meld sort of my you know, research um, with my deep desire to help people living in other countries. Um, I'll just speak mostly to PM 2.5. Otherwise, I'd be here for like right. six hours <laughs> and you'd be afraid to breathe the air inside <laughs> inside any building. Exactly. Fair uh, that's one of the problems with studying environmental health is if you want to live in a bubble. <laughs> um, so um, PM 2.5, you know, is one of the best uh, sort of studied uh, indoor air pollutants. Um, 
And I'll sort of break it down by, you know, highest concern amongst different uh, populations. So let's focus on kids first. And so uh, infants and children, um, the number one killer in low-middle countries is actually pneumonia. Um, and there's very good evidence um, showing that if you're exposed to a lot of this PM2.5, um, you're much more susceptible to getting uh, infections and dying. Um, and so that's one huge concern. And this actually, you know, crosses the age spectrum. It's also been associated with pneumonia and even tuberculosis in adults. Um, another concern is asthma. Um, and so uh, we think that high exposure to PM2.5 predisposes you to asthma, though there haven't been as many great studies on that, mainly because it's harder to study. Um, and finally, a huge thing is that we believe that if you're exposed to a lot of PM2.5, your lungs don't grow to their maximum capacity. Um, and so when you start getting sick and you start losing lung function, there's less of a buffer um, for you to get to a point where you can't function because you can't breathe. Um, and so, you know, that's what we worry about in kids. Although, again, like all this applies across the age spectrum. Um, in adults, I'll focus on women. And so a huge issue that's being studied right now is actually pregnancy loss or stillbirths or placental pathology. And so that's actually very well demonstrated. Um, if you're exposed to a lot of PM2.5, actually, you know, you're more likely to lose your baby. Um, in both women and men, there's a whole host of chronic diseases. Um, and so things like high blood pressure, hypertension, heart disease, um, uh, strokes, um, that's also been well demonstrated. Um, and so it really is sort of like the number one environmental uh, health issue that we are concerned about worldwide um, really is indoor air pollution. When you began your research, you were looking at cooktops, mm -hmm. but it changed to lighting sources. Why did this change occur? Yeah, so, you know, when I started doing the study, I, you know, was a little naive. <laughs> and so, you know, you do what everyone else does, which is you you, you read the literature and you talk to other people and... Um, all the studies sort of focus on cooking, and there's no doubt that cooking causes really high levels of indoor air pollution um, because you walk into one of these kitchens, and so it's like three stones, you know, a pot and a stick of wood, and it's, you know, like the walls are covered with soot, and you're like, this must be the problem, and, we, you know, that's how we solve this problem um, is by addressing cook stoves. Um, but, you know, a number of things sort of affected our thinking. Uh, number one is that uh, there have been a number of really high-profile randomized controlled trials looking at improved cookstoves that have shown no effect or less effect than uh, people have assumed. But the other thing is, you know, when I first went to Uganda in 2015, um, you know, I sort of went on a listening tour um, where I went and talked to, you know, different people in the medical school and the community um, just to ask them, you know, had they heard about this problem of indoor air pollution? You know, did they understand what it was? you know, and in their mind, what contributed to indoor air pollution. Um, and one thing um, I did hear, um, actually, from the dean of the medical school, um, was that he was very concerned about these kerosene lamps. They're called tadobas in the local language, and so they're these open wick kerosene lamps where you take a tin can and you add a wick, essentially, and you fill it with kerosene and you burn. And when you see a tadoba burning, you'll know because like it just it emits this giant plume of black smoke, <laughs> and you're like, of course, um, this is a problem. Um, and so uh, on the advice of the dean, um, when we were doing our, our air quality measurements, we also added in a survey to participants asking them, besides you know their cooking practices, what is your primary source of indoor lighting? Um, and indeed, um, what we found was that you know the primary source of indoor lighting was actually the major determinant of indoor air quality in the homes, not not cooking. 
Um, and so I think, you know, it highlights the importance of, you know, going on a listening tour before you start any project in these countries, because you might have the scientific know-how to answer questions, but you certainly don't know the most important questions to ask. And so it's really important as part of a partnership to, you know, do the best science and help the people. Our study first started as an observational study. We simply, you know, went into uh, homes, asked for permission and placed air samplers. And I also asked people, you know, what is your primary source of lighting? Um, we also investigated kitchens and other factors like that. Um, from that study, um, we actually uh, were able to publish a paper recently demonstrating that um, if you looked at um, the average uh, levels of PM2.5 in homes uh, using these open wick uh, kerosene lamps, uh, about 75% of the time, these homes using open wick kerosene lamps had unacceptable indoor uh, levels of PM2.5. Um, in contrast, we had um, uh, a small proportion of our um, population, about 10%, that had solar lighting. And so when you measured air quality um, in these homes, um, what you found was that um, uh, it's only 25% of the time that they had unacceptable air quality levels. Or conversely, you know, three-quarters of the time, the air quality levels were what would be acceptable even for the U.S. Um, and so that, you know, was really interesting to us because it didn't matter how far away your kitchen was from your main home. It didn't matter if you burned trash. It didn't even matter if occasionally you used uh, a secondary stove inside your home, for example, to, to make tea. It seemed like your primary lighting source was actually the main determinant of indoor uh, PM2.5 levels and also um, something called black carbon that we measured as well. Um, and so that actually got us pretty excited because, you know, I think cooking, like I said, is a, is a, is a very difficult problem to tackle. Um, but in uh, the region where we work, there's actually a ton of commercial solar panels on the market already. And so uh, for about $150, um, you could buy the panel, um, the light bulbs, uh, the wiring, the, the installation, and also a five-year warranty on the whole system. Um, and so uh, we did get a very small pilot grant to buy solar panels. And so in our small cohort of 88 women, we are randomizing them um, to getting solar panels um, and uh, just seeing whether that intervention alone will reduce you know, indoor air pollution levels. Um, so that's our ongoing study right now. We are applying for funding um, because at the end of the day, not only do we want to demonstrate that this intervention reduces indoor air pollution levels enough to have a health effect, but also to measure the health effect. Does that mean we should not work on cooking stoves anymore and not be concerned with it? Uh, no, I don't think so. I, mean, I think, you know, what I was trying to say is that, you know, cooking is a very difficult problem. Um, and by addressing lighting first, it's kind of low-hanging fruit. And so there's already a, a market um, for solar panels and solar lighting. Um, it's readily available um, in many rural areas. Um, and, you know, as I mentioned, you know, if you buy the solar panel system, it comes with a five-year warranty. So someone will fix it, you know, not a study or not an NGO, but actually someone locally will fix it. Um, and I think that addresses, uh, you know, a lot of these issues. Um, I think, you know, clearly cooking contributes to indoor air pollution. Maybe it's not the whole story as, you know, we're finding out in our study, but it is a huge component. And clean air is about clean cooking and clean lighting and, and clean everything. Um, there are a few studies that are exploring other options. And so these improves uh, efficiency cookstoves that still use wood clearly haven't worked very well. 
Um, and so there are a few other studies, um, one concluding in Ghana, uh, looking at providing people with uh, propane stoves as well as a supply of propane for the duration of the study. And then another uh, large um, trial that's just starting in three different countries, um, looking at providing, again, people with propane stoves and uh, a supply of propane for three years to see if that's enough to reduce indoor air pollution, um, whether that's enough for health effects. And so I think, you know, it's it's going to be a concerted effort. But I think the question to ask is, you know, what will work and how much of a reduction is enough to improve health. Um, and the question really from our perspective is, if you fix lighting, is that enough to improve health? Because cooking is such a difficult problem. What has been the major takeaway from your research thus far? I think, you know, for me as a, a researcher, um, it just, I've learned so much about the importance of listening. Um, of listening to the people on the ground, um, giving you advice. Um, and so, you know, one example I gave early on was that, you know, when I started this study, we weren't really even that interested in lighting. Um, but on the advice of some of um, the people on the ground, we added it in. And I'll tell you that uh, about six months ago, when I first found out about these results, I went back to Uganda and I presented these results to the team. And I was like, guys, you know, this is so exciting. And one of my nurses was like, oh, we already knew that. I was like, what do you mean you already knew that? <laughs> and so she said that, you know, when they were growing up as children, they knew who used these open wood kerosene lamps um, at school because she said you flick their noses and it would be black. And so I think what she was describing was that there's visible soot inside their noses. And so, you know, from their perspective, it was clear that, you know, these open wood kerosene lamps are a huge problem, um, but somehow it never registered. Um at least in the scientific literature. And I'll tell you also that, you know, I've grown a lot also as someone who does clinical research um, because, you know, there are very subtle things um, that requires a lot of listening. And so as one of the participant incentives, when they come in for a study visit, we give them a bar of soap. And I was just like, okay, a bar of soap is a bar of soap. But one of my researcher assistants pointed out that the bar of soap we were giving was number one, not one kilo, was 750 grams. And number two, that was blue. And so when people wash their clothes, sometimes it would stain their clothes blue. Um, and also that these blue bars of soap were available in the villages. So it really wasn't anything special. Um, and so she recommended that we switch to these white bar of soaps that was one kilo that could only be purchased in the city. <laughs> um, and that was white. And I will tell you that people did a lot of grumbling in the beginning when we put these noisy air samplers in the houses. But when we switched from the blue to the white bars of soap, it was... There was no more grumbling. And so, again, I think to do really successful research, it has to be a partnership between, you know, the people who know the methods, and but the people who also know what the important questions are and what, what will actually work. Um, and so I think, again, it just highlights that the importance of having strong partners that you're willing to listen to who really offer very valuable advice about how to do your study and how to make it successful. Thank you again for joining us, Dr. Lai. It has been a pleasure to have this conversation with you. And thanks so much for having me and for letting me talk about the work that me and my team are doing. Next time on Think Research. So for decades, people just assumed that eradication was not feasible. And then the sort of economic burden that malaria places on endemic countries um, was, was looked at and people started to think, you know, we can't, we can't be just controlling this disease forever right we have to move towards eradication one of the reasons is you know the burden of malaria is enormous it's over 500,000 deaths 
each year due to malaria, mostly in children under five in sub-Saharan Africa. And more than that, the burden of morbidity, so just people not going to work and having seasonal malaria and all of this is incredibly costly and it's keeping endemic countries down economically as well. Dr. Caroline Bucky talks to us about her work studying malaria pathogenesis and how mobile phone data can be used to predict the spread of disease. Harvard Catalyst Think Research is supported by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Subscribe to Think Research on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. To find out more about our podcast or suggest topics for future episodes, visit our website, www.catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch.